Welcome to the teaching ministry of Bay Ridge Christian Church. This teaching is from the series Mission Possible. As Christians, we are called to be on mission, longing and working to see God known and worshipped by people from every culture, from our own city to the ends of the earth. Today's text is really going to be the whole book of Jonah, but I'm going to read what is really the central passage, central section in the book of Jonah, that famous book, um, but very misunderstood book. And so I'm going to read Jonah chapter 3, verse 10, through chapter 4, verse 4, which is really the heart of the book of Jonah, and I will be explaining why this morning. Uh, as always, the, the scripture verses will be up here on the screens for our visitors. You can just follow along on the screens and see everything. And I want to encourage everyone to, uh, I'm going to go ahead and tell you now, this, this is a difficult teaching, okay? It, it was difficult for me studying through it all week. Uh, we're going to be looking at what I'm calling the Jonah cycle. This is how you and I are sad to say too often like Jonah. And uh, it's, a, it's a difficult story. So I want to encourage you. Uh, I am going to finish with the gospel, but we're going to have a little bit of law before we get to the gospel. We look at Jonah. So hear now the word of the living God. When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he had compassion, did not bring upon them the destruction he had threatened. But Jonah was greatly displeased and became angry. He prayed to the Lord, Oh, Lord, is this not what I said while I was still at home? That is why I was so quick to flee to Tarshish. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Now, oh, Lord, take away my life, for it is better for me to die than to live. But the Lord replied, Have you any right to be angry. A few years ago, Clint Eastwood uh, made a movie called Gran Torino. And in the movie, uh, Eastwood is a, a former military veteran, and he is an extreme racist in the movie. I, I'm telling you now, if you decide to watch the movie because of me talking about it here, be prepared. It is very difficult to listen to. He pulls out racist epithets for his Southeast Asian neighbors that I had never even heard in the Marine Corps. Uh, he's a very racist individual, and he cannot stand that he has these people from Southeast Asia living next door to him. But as you go through the story, you discover that he is alienated from his own children because he feels like he has nothing in common with his own children. That the culture around him has shifted in ways he does not like, he does not approve of. And what also happens in the story is he starts discovering there is a group of people that he finds himself actually liking things about them, and it's his Asian neighbors. And so he goes through this struggle, and by the end of the movie, he actually dies, and when he dies, he actually is in the shape of a cross as he sacrifices himself to save the neighbors who he had hated for the first part of the movie. I bring that movie up because it reminds me of the reluctant prophet Jonah. Sad to say, there's a lot in common between Jonah 
and the Clint Eastwood character in that movie, Gran Torino. And we see in the movie that Jonah does not want to go to the people where God sends him. And here's the scary, crazy thing in the book of Jonah. Unlike the way we like our movies and stuff, it doesn't end with Jonah saying, oh, I get it. And Jonah was changed and everyone lived happily ever after. In fact, we're never told if Jonah changes or not. Because the point of the book is for you and I to read it and ask ourselves, are we like Jonah? And so we're going to look and see what the story of Jonah is, but more than that, what I really want to do is I want to drive into why Jonah does what Jonah does. Most people know the story that he doesn't go down to Nineveh like he's supposed to, and he's swallowed by the big fish that the Lord prepared, and we all know that famous story. What we don't know is why did Jonah disobey? That's what's oftentimes overlooked, but that's what's really central in the biblical story. And it's important to us as we're looking at this whole series on mission. Today we're going to be looking at the barriers to mission. And the barriers to mission are when we have the same attitudes that Jonah had. It prevents us from being on mission with God. So let me begin by talking about Jonah the reluctant prophet and give a brief overview of the story just to let us all know. As you remember at the very beginning of the book, Jonah is commanded to go to Nineveh which was the capital of the Assyrian Empire, a very wicked empire. It was a very wicked city. And Jonah was told to go there and preach that they were going to come under the judgment of God if they did not repent. And we read in chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, the word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai, go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it because its wickedness has come up before me. And so Jonah here is a prophet. And we're going to see he's mentioned elsewhere in Scripture. He knew the voice of God. He knew it was God calling him. This wasn't him just thinking this. It wasn't something strange he'd eaten the night before. This was the voice of Yahweh telling him, go to Nineveh and deliver my message to the city. And so when we read every other prophetic book and the word of the Lord comes to the prophet, we then read that the prophet goes and does what the Lord says. And we would expect that to be the case here. Surely Jonah is going to do what Yahweh says. But the strange thing is the very next verse, chapter 1, verse 3, where we read Jonah disobeys God's call. And we read Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed for Tarshish. He went down to Joppa where he found a ship bound for that port. And after paying the fare, he went aboard and sailed for Tarshish to flee from the Lord. Now, if, if you knew your geography of the ancient Near East, you'd know Tarshish is the exact opposite direction. It's like if Jonah was told by, uh, he lived here in Annapolis, and he was told go to New York City, he's heading for the west, southwest coast. He's going to Phoenix. He's getting as far away as he can possibly go. And furthermore, what we read is Jonah's flight from Yahweh ends in disaster. I won't put the verses up here, but if you notice, it says he went down to Joppa. There's a whole series of phrases that the New International Version translates different ways, but he goes down to Joppa. He goes down to get fare for the ship. He goes onto the ship and he goes down into the hold of the ship. He's going down, down, down. And then there's this huge storm that comes. All the other sailors are seeking their gods. Jonah is asleep down in the hold of the ship as disaster is coming. And then we know the, the famous part of the story, which is that Jonah finally says, but you need to understand, Jonah is not being uh, kind here. He says, well, just throw me overboard. I'm the cause of the problem. But why does Jonah want to get thrown overboard? 
well, this is how I'll fix it. I'll get thrown overboard. I'll drown in the sea, and I don't have to obey Yahweh. This is not, I'm trying to save these sailors. Jonah doesn't care about those sailors. Jonah just does not want to obey Yahweh. So he gets swallowed by the great fish. He's astounded by that. He gives this great prayer in chapter 2 about how Yahweh has saved him and how salvation belongs to Yahweh, unless he's going to start dispensing it in places Jonah doesn't approve. Then we're going to find out whether he really thinks it belongs to Yahweh or not. So in chapter 3, Jonah goes and he proclaims God's word. He is graciously recommissioned by Yahweh, and he goes out and he proclaims God's word in chapter 3. But the crazy thing is the Ninevites repent. Unlike Jonah, who is still on his crazy path, the Ninevites actually repent. And you get this stuff, if you read the story, the king says, listen, it's not enough that we're going to say we're sorry. I want everybody in the whole city of Nineveh to get in sackcloth and ashes. And as a matter of fact, if you got a cow, you put them in sackcloth. Everything. You get, get your pet dog out. Make them repent. Everybody's going to repent. We're in trouble. And as the reader, you're shocked. Everybody in the whole thing, the sailors did what they were supposed to. Everybody's repenting everywhere except for Jonah. And so what we find is, now you would think, again, you look at a poor prophet like Jeremiah who spends his whole life longing for someone, anyone, to listen and repent. This is the most successful prophet in all of Scripture. Everybody listens to him. And how does Jonah respond? Well, that's our text. We read there in you know, verse 10, going through chapter 4, I won't read it all again, but God sees the Ninevites' repentance, and what does he say? Well, then I forgive you. If you repent, I forgive. I'm a gracious God. And we expect Jonah to say, okay, well, this is awesome, but Jonah doesn't. Jonah is angry, and he tells us, this is why I didn't want to come. I knew this was going to happen. You're the kind of God that's going to mess it up. You're going to forgive these people, and I didn't want them forgiven. And so Jonah does this. And in fact, if you continue on past this, we get a second cycle of the same thing. Jonah's sitting there fuming, and there's a hot sun, and God causes this plant to miraculously grow up really, really quick, and it gives shade over Jonah's head. And Jonah's like, well, this is okay, and I'll just sit here and I'll wait because I'm still hoping God's going to change his mind and fix this city and destroy the whole place. But God doesn't do that. Instead, what he does is he sends a worm, and it destroys the plant. And now Jonah is furious about that. And he's, it says that he's sorry that the plant died. And God comes to Jonah at the end of the book and says, really, Jonah, you did nothing to bring that plant into existence. You're all worried about one plant. Nineveh's got 120,000 people, all kinds of cattle and everything else. I raised that city up, and you have no compassion on that city, but you had compassion on a plant. And that's where the book ends. We're left there with Jonah in this tension of how will he respond. And you need to understand, that's why the story's there. The story's not really about a big fish swallowing a prophet and all the stuff we're going to make. The story is about, are we like Jonah? Are we in the place that Jonah is in? And there are big questions. How could a prophet of Yahweh disobey like this? What prompted Jonah's disobedience? And do the same problems afflict me so that I don't obey Yahweh's call for me? Because you need to understand, 
if you have the same attitudes, if I have the same attitudes Jonah has, I will have the same actions. I may, I may couch it in nice theological language, but I will not join Yahweh on mission because I have the wrong attitude. So what is the Jonah cycle? What are his sins and the sins that we have to examine ourselves for? Well, first, notice Jonah has a volitional problem. He simply, by his will, disobeys Yahweh, which is an astounding thing. I want you to understand. God commands the entire universe, and nothing says no to his will, except for we little bipeds. We say no, and that's what Jonah does. And so, in you know, chapter 1, verses 1 and 3, Yahweh says go, and Jonah says no, and he goes in the opposite direction. And please understand, the text wants us to know, there is no question Jonah knew it was God's call. This is not Jonah didn't go because he didn't understand. He knew he was called. He simply disobeyed, and he fled from God's call. Now, this reminds us, and it is a central problem for us, Christians know, are we called to go to the lost here and abroad? Yes. And if you are part of this church, there is no way you don't know. Okay? We are praying for it every single week. We talk about our call to mission all the time. And this entire series, the entire fall, is about mission. There is no one that sits under the sound of of my voice on Sunday mornings that does not know, therefore go and make disciples of all nations. It's not possible. That was not Jonah's problem. And friends had to say it's really not ours. But the thing that happens here is the disobedience to embrace the call to mission is the fruit of deeper sins that have to be exposed, confessed, and repented of by God's people. Jonah didn't just decide to disobey. Jonah was driven to disobedience by the other attitudes that we're going to see in the book. And if you and I have those attitudes, we'll be driven to the same disobedience. So what are those? Well, first, Jonah has a theological problem. He had a volitional problem. Now he has a theological problem, which is there's a selective acceptance of Yahweh's word and will. Now, why do I say this? In 2 Kings 14.25, we're told about the prophet Jonah. He's a prophet in the northern tribes, Samaria, that the ten tribes are up north. And we're reading about Jeroboam II, a king of Israel. And we're told he, Jeroboam II, was the one who restored the boundaries of Israel in accordance with the word of the Lord, the God of Israel, spoken through his servant, Jonah, son of Amittai, the prophet from Gath-Hefer. And so Jonah had prophesied the success of Jeroboam II. When Jeroboam came to the throne, Jonah received a word from Yahweh and said, you are going to go forth, you're going to conquer other kingdoms, you are going to restore Israel to her glory, you're going to bring us back to power. And Jonah said, I like that. And so he willingly received God's word and will that promised success for his own people. As long as Yahweh's word was what Jonah wanted, Jonah was willing to take that word. Jonah would preach and proclaim that word. He boldly spoke God's word as long as it lined up with his own desires and his own predisposition. But Jonah rejected God's word and will when it did not line up with his own desires. That's not someone else's problem. That's my problem. If you are honest, 
There are sections of Scripture I don't like. God has this nasty habit of doing things and running amok without my permission because he thinks he's God. Okay? Now, listen and let it settle in, and don't be thinking about someone else. The problem is we can be like Jonah. We can reject God's word and will when it does not line up with our own desires. And I, can I tell you that there are many today who will boldly proclaim God's word and will when it lines up with their own desires and dispositions, but refuse to do so when it crosses their own desires and dispositions. They selectively take out of the text of Scripture and speak what they like. And then they fall silent on the things they don't like. That afflicts the modern American evangelical church. We are very selective in what we want to hear. And friends, we will not join God on mission when we selectively choose which parts of his word and will to accept. What we'll do is we'll join parts of the mission. But that is not the way God works. That is not the way God works. Let me give you an example from not too long ago. In the 1960s, the predominantly white evangelical church was missing in action because we didn't like some of the stuff in the civil rights movement. And God was at work exposing sin, and we didn't want any part of it. And we are still reaping bad fruit out of doing that. When God's word and will, people who stood up and boldly proclaimed the word in one area fell silent in another because it didn't line up with what they wanted to hear. But it didn't change the fact that God was at work and he was calling them to mission. And like Jonah, they got in a ship and they headed to Tarshish including people that are some of my heroes and that I like, but it's what they did. The next thing we see is Jonah not only has a, a volitional problem of his will and a theological problem, he has a compassion problem. He doesn't want Nineveh to be forgiven. Notice in chapter 4, verse 2, the text we were looking at. He prays to the Lord and says, Oh, Lord, is this not what I said when I was still at home? It's why I was so quick to flee to Tarshish. Jonah's telling us why. We don't have to figure out why when he's telling us why he went. I knew you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. I did not want to go to Nineveh because I knew you might forgive these people. And here's the bottom line. I don't want them forgiven. I want Nineveh to pay for its sins. Now listen to me. Nineveh is wicked. You can go up to the Walters Art Gallery in Baltimore and you can see from the kings of Assyria and the stuff they said and did. They were, I mean, among wicked kingdoms, they were really wicked. This was, this was not a good people. And Jonah has watched and has seen their sins and has said, I don't want those people forgiven. I want them to be ground down like dust. And I want to tap dance on them when it happens. That's exactly what's going on in the heart of the prophet. Now, what Jonah's doing here is acting like he's holier than God. Who would Assyria sinned against? Yahweh. That's 
always who our first offense is against. No matter what you do to me, the prior offense is always to God. The, the final offense is always to God. The deepest offense is always to God. The highest offense is always to God. And if God says, I forgive, who is Jonah? And who am I to say, don't you be doing that? I want my pound of flesh out of these people. And that is the heart that Jonah has going. James tells us that mercy triumphs over judgment. And how many of you are glad for that? Man, I am grateful to God that mercy triumphs over judgment because I know my own sin. And it better be on that day that I stand there and mercy triumphs over judgment. I'm going to be, that's, that's about the only verse in the book of James I'm going to be quoting. Mercy triumphs over judgment, Lord. Jonah, however, says, oh no, I want judgment to triumph over mercy. I want judgment to get them. Don't you give, uh, forgive them, God. Jesus, on the cross, as the soldiers are gambling with lots for his clothes, as they, have, as they have mocked him, as his enemies, the chief priests are around him and are putting him to death, what does Jesus say on the cross? Father, forgive who? Is it just selectively, Lord, that one? That one over there. But the rest of them, is that what Jesus does? Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. But see what Jonah says is, Father, don't you dare forgive them. Judge them. Jesus' blood cries out for forgiveness. Speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Jonah speaks a worse word than the blood of Abel. He wants Nineveh to pay for their sin. And please understand, these, see, he has a volitional problem because he has a theological problem. And he has a theological problem because he has a compassion problem. He, he knows enough about God to know the way God is, but he doesn't want to proclaim that. He doesn't want to walk in line with that because he does not want Nineveh forgiven. This is the root of his theological and volitional problems. He did not obey God because he rejected God's word of forgiveness to Nineveh. He did not want that. And friends, you and I will not join God on mission if we prefer judgment over mercy and do not want to see wicked and idolatrous people forgiven. Who in here was wicked when they were called by God and saved? If you're a believer, you were wicked. Paul tells us God justifies, present tense, the wicked. That's who we are. But see, Jonah, far too often I, say, yeah, but they're really wicked. Because they're wicked in a way, like, it's not my kind of wicked. It's their kind. My kind should be forgiven. Their kind heaps some judgment on them. Now, what that leads to is Jonah's next problem is a discrimination problem. He had a problem of his will because he had a theological problem, and he had a theological problem because he had a compassion problem, and he's got a compassion problem because he has a discrimination problem. Here's the bottom line. Nineveh is not us. Because the reality is Jonah hated the sins of Nineveh and did not want them forgiven. But see, when he's in the belly of the fish and he has sinned against Yahweh, what's he, what's he singing about? Oh, Yahweh, you're a gracious and compassionate God. You forgive me. Thank you 
for forgiving me. Thank you for your mercy. Salvation belongs to you, and thank you for dispensing it on me. Because I kind of deserve it. But don't you go give it to Nineveh. But it goes even further than just that. Jonah hated the sons of Nineveh, but nowhere do we have a record of Jonah speaking against the sins of his own people. But Jonah lived in a nation full of wickedness. And we don't have to guess. We have the record of it in 2 Kings. Remember that verse I read in 2 Kings 14 a minute ago? Well, let me give you God's description of the king. 2 Kings 14, 24, and 25. He, Jeroboam II, and first off, you should take a clue by the guy's name. Jeroboam is the great idolater in Israel's history. And this guy said, I think I'm going to take his name. Not a good choice, okay? And he, Jeroboam II, did evil in the eyes of the Lord and did not turn away from any of the sins of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, which he had caused Israel to commit. He was the one who restored the boundaries, and he did all this according to Jonah. What's not there? See, Jeroboam II did evil in Yahweh's eyes, but Jonah did not mind prophesying and saying, hey, Jeroboam, God's going to bless you. But what if Yahweh says, I've decided I want to bless Nineveh? Ooh, no, 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 Lord. No, 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 I'm, I'm not delivering that word. I don't mind if you want to bless us. I know this guy leading us is an idolater, but he's my idolater. He's one of us. See, he may be doing the same sins that I'm railing against Nineveh for doing, but he's my guy. Some of you might want to think about some political things that have happened this week. When I have watched evangelical leaders sell their soul for a pot of stew because it's our guy that's doing the sin, and we railed against the other guy when he did the same sin. You can't join God on mission if you're going to be that way. We, of all people, we cannot be hypocrites. That's exactly what Jonah is. He accepts the same sins in his own nation he will not accept from another nation. And therefore, he refuses to obey God. So he could boldly decry the sins of Assyria, but he overlooked the sins of his own people and simply longed for them to prosper. And if you think we're not suspect to that, you're kidding yourself. We, we, this is who we are as a people ever since Adam. It's not my fault. It's not me. It's somebody else. And they should be judged, but not me. It is always easier to see the sins of others and to denounce them than it is to see my own sins and to confess and repent of them. It is always easier to demand deep repentance from others while lightly excusing my own sin. Not enough that you repent. you got to grovel, and you got to grovel some more. So you have proven to me your repentance. And when we do the same thing, well, you know, boys will be boys, and, you know, let's just move on. Nothing to see here. Is that not what we do? And, friends, that's exactly what Jonah did. And I want to say, by the way, If any of you were listening to this in political lines or anything else, this sermon was completed before there were any revelations this past week. 
So it has nothing to do with that, but it's quite apropos to what's going on right now. We will not join God on mission if we see the sins of others as more heinous than our own, demanding repentance from them while excusing ourselves. If you want to see a New Testament example of this, I encourage you, if you go in the book of Luke chapter 13, when the Tower of Siloam falls on the people and everybody is trying to say, I wonder what their sins were, what's Jesus' word? Jesus' words, they're no more wicked than anybody else, but you better check your own heart and you better repent of your own sins or something worse could befall you. Jesus' word to us is always this. Be mainly concerned with your own sin. Be mainly concerned with letting the Holy Spirit examine your own heart. Quick to confess. We, we of all people, we ought to maximize in our own eyes, the sin that we have. He who's been forgiven much will love much. But we turn it on his head and do the exact opposite of what Jesus says, that I am so tempted to minimize my own sin and maximize that of others. And that's exactly what Jonah did. And you can't join God on mission when you do that. And then let me get to the last issue that is the root even of that. And that's that Jonah has an ethnocentric problem. An ethnocentric problem. Now let me define what that big word means. Ethnocentrism. That's the tendency to view my culture as superior to all others and the standard by which all others are judged. Now that's not something that could afflict Americans because we have the best culture. We are the standard, right? Friends, man, we are the poster children for this sin. But I want you to understand it's what's going on in Jonah's heart. Now, I want to show you something here. You can put the next thing up here. This is a map of the world from Australia's perspective. This is how the world looks if you're Australian. Are you actually aware? I can put some other maps up there. Do you know that maps are distorted and what size things appear and everything else? And who are they distorted for? Us in Western Europe. Because, of course, what's the center of the map? us in Western Europe, because we're the center of everything, right? But see, that, that perspective right there is how we all view things. I view it from my own position, from my own vantage point, and it's exactly what Jonah did. Please understand this. Jonah loved his own people more than the Ninevites because he thought the Israelites were better. And that's why the book is there. God, who as we saw a couple of weeks ago, how long has God been on mission for the nations? All the way, the call to Abraham, I'm going to bless the nations through you. I'm after the nations and it's through you. And Jonah, here we are hundreds of years later, is like, I don't want those nations to come into this. Just judge them. I don't want blessing going to them. How far are we from God's covenant call? But see, we're better than they are. Are. I like things about us that are better. Jonah knew Assyria is soon going to rise to power. Assyria is in a downturn right now, but Assyria is going to come back to power. And when they do, you need to understand, Jonah is prophesying somewhere between 790 and 750 B.C. In 722, Assyria is going to show up and they're going to come outside the capital of the country Jonah loves, and they are going to destroy it. And they're going to carry all the people off into exile. 
and the prophet can see what's on the horizon. And when he sees what's on the horizon, guess what his thought is? I don't want that. I don't like that. Now put yourself in his place. What if I told you sometime in the next 50 years, this people I'm telling you God wants us to go and reach out to, they're going to rise up and they're going to come and you're going to see the White House bombed. And it'll be gone and we will cease to exist as a nation. How many of you think you might have a little bit of a hard time joining me on a mission trip to go help them? Be honest. But see, here's the problem. Who wanted the Ninevites saved? <laughs> Yahweh did. It's not up to Jonah. It's up to Yahweh. And guess who knew certainly that the Assyrians were going to come and get the northern ten tribes? Yahweh did. He's the, maybe Jonah's a prophet. I think he knew. But maybe he's a prophet he didn't. But I can tell you who did know. Yahweh knew. He knew exactly what was going to happen. But see, Jonah loved and was more committed to his own people than he was to the cause of God. But friends, our first allegiance, our first loyalty, has to be to God, to his glory, to his cause. Not our own culture, not our own nation, not our own way of life. Now, I want to remind you, and for our visitors, I'm a Naval Academy graduate, went in the Marine Corps, I raised a couple of sons who I got one sitting back there, went to the Air Force Academy, another one sitting back there, went in the Marine Corps, kind of a patriotic kind of guy. That is not my first allegiance. You hear me. Better for America to perish and God receive glory than for us to continue on and God not receive glory. And if we can't say that, we're idolaters. We've made an idolatry out of our own nation is what we've done. And we're like Jonah. Like Jonah, we're all tempted to prefer our own people, our own culture over other people and their culture. And we identify God with our own culture to the exclusion of them and their culture. What they need is to be like us. In fact, when the modern missionary movement started, when we went to China, what did we expect the Chinese to do to become Christian? Start dressing like us and acting like us. And you want to read something? Jay Hudson Taylor just simply said, well, actually, as I read Paul, if I go to them, I'm supposed to act like them. So I'm going to start growing my hair their way and wearing Chinese clothes. And all the English people thought he had lost his mind and people stopped giving money to help him. Because if you're going to be a Christian, then you have to be an Englishman, right? you got to act and talk like us. Your culture has to be like ours because God likes our culture. He doesn't like that other stuff. Except for the funny thing is, when I read Revelation 21 and 22, how many cultures are still there? All of them. Because apparently God does like them. And he doesn't prefer mine. I prefer mine. I like mine. Because it's what I've grown up in. But here's a deep theological truth. I'm not God, nor are you. Just because I like certain music, well, God does like the music I like, I'm pretty sure, because I have good taste in music. Because I like certain ways of dressing, certain food, certain, does not mean that's Yahweh's preference. It means it's Brett's preference. And the reason this is a danger is the more I believe it is, 
the less I will go on mission to the person who is other than I am. We don't want God to bless others if we think they might undermine our own culture and our own way of life. But the kingdom is not about my culture and my way of life. The kingdom is about the kingdom. And can I tell you, cultures come and go. At one time it was Greece, another time it was Rome, and the kingdom has survived all of those. And it will survive whether America is here or not. We may even want other people to receive the gospel just as long as they'll repent and become like us. But if they're not going to do that, then I'm not too sure I really want them getting blessed because it's more important they become like me. Now, one way this comes out today is American exceptionalism. We're unique, and we are pretty much the new Jerusalem come to earth. And let me say, has America been a force for good in world history? We have, undoubtedly. We've done a lot of really good things. Has America been a major force for the gospel? Yes, sent more missionaries than any other country. We have. Um, does America have some bad things in our history? How did we get the land we're sitting on right now? We came over and we played a game of cards and won it, right? Or did we steal it and exterminate the people who lived here before us? It's choice B if you haven't read your history. In fact, how we oftentimes did it is we discovered the Native Americans had no immunity to smallpox, so you just rub a blanket with smallpox and send it into the camp, and bang, two weeks later, all the men, all the women, all the children are dead. That's pretty much how we did it. Not to mention, we are a great economic power which was built on the back of people that we forcibly stole from another continent and brought here and enslaved for hundreds of years. Both of those things are true about America, just like every other country that has ever existed. Here's a clue for you. If you ask yourself about the country, whatever it is you're studying, and it's between Genesis 3 and Revelation 21, they're a complete mixed bag. All of them. And that includes the country in which we live. There's good stuff and there's bad stuff. But what we are all tempted to believe is, no, we're really only the good stuff. And I mean, we've got little things here and there, but God kind of winks at those. But he's really upset at that culture's stuff. You know how many Christian nations have said that? All of them. Every group where there were Christians said the same thing. The Romans, when we think of the Roman Empire, most of you, if I say the Roman Empire and Christians, what do you think? What did they do to us? Right, they threw us to the lions and killed us. Except for when Rome was being surrounded and about to fall in 410. You know what all the Christians were saying? It's the end of the world. How will Christianity survive apart from the Roman Empire? Well, a hundred years ago, they were killing us all. <laughs> so I think we will survive this. But see, no, no, no. It was all meshed in with Rome. And all the other people were barbarians. And in fact, we don't really want to go to them. We just want them to stay over there and we'll stay here. Well, guess what God did? If you don't go to the barbarians, the barbarians will come to you. 
And then amazingly enough, the gospel is so powerful. What happened to the barbarians? They converted. And then the barbarians sat there, and they went back into England, and then the Angles and Saxons showed up in England, and guess what the Christians there did? Said, I wish you would go away. I don't want you here, and I am not interested in giving the gospel to you. You know that the, even when the Angles and Saxons converted, the original inhabitants of England that were down in Wales would not talk to their fellow believers now, because once again, they had been converted by the gospel. They wouldn't talk to them for almost a thousand years, because you took some of our stuff. Never mind that we took it from other people, but you took some of our stuff. And then suddenly, we're all there, and now the Vikings show up, because we didn't want to go to the Vikings. And once again, if you don't go to the Vikings, the Vikings will come to you. That is the way God seems to have worked down through history. And when they come, we don't want them to get the gospel, because we were more concerned about our own culture. The Holy Roman Empire, which was neither holy nor Roman nor an empire, but that's beside the point, in their mind, they were all of that. And when the Vikings show up, we're not interested. We just want to keep you all away from us. How about worrying about the fact that they are perishing apart from the gospel? Maybe that should be our primary concern and not our culture and our stuff. And then after the Vikings come, I can continue on and on all the way down. Often, even when the flood of immigrants and conquerors came, Christians are more concerned down through history to maintain their own culture and peace than reach out to those that God has brought to their own doors. That's church history. If you don't believe me, ask some of the people who are taking it on Saturday mornings with us. We have seen this over and over and over again. Such behavior is the final result of the Jonah cycle. It's direct disobedience to the call of God. They're here. God wants me to share with them but I don't want any part of this. Now, I could bring up, is there a group of people largely unpenetrated by the gospel today? What's the single largest block of people not penetrated with the gospel? Muslims. Everybody say it with me. Muslims. And evangelicals are all excited about interacting with Muslims, right? The first thing we're saying if Muslims start coming here to our country is this is an opportunity to reach out to unreached people with the gospel. That's the first thing we say, right? Is that what we're all saying? Is that what the newsletters you're getting and the emails you're getting are saying? Or are they saying we need to keep these people away? Just asking a question. And am I more like Jonah or more in obedience to Jesus? Because we will not join God on mission if we love our own nation and our own culture more than we love God and his cause on earth. Bottom line, I'll be just like John. See, if, I, if I'm ethnocentric, then what that's going to lead me to is being discriminatory. What that's going to lead me to is actually uh, looking back and saying, I don't have compassion on these other people because they're different than me. They're not one of us. And then that's going to lead me to carving out only part of God's word and will that I like, and ultimately that ends up with me on a ship to Tarshish, just like it did with Jonah. This is pretty challenging, isn't it? Because, folks, I, I'm, not saying, I'm not saying I sit here and see other people. I see me in this. This is challenging to me. 
Now, what does this mean for us? How do we apply the word? And we'll close in prayer. I want to remind us, and I told you I would get to the good stuff. That's been law. But I want to remind you of the gospel. The basis of mission is not law. The basis of mission is the gospel. Jonah was not sent on mission to get a relationship with God. He was sent on mission because he'd already been graciously given a relationship with God. And in fact, Jonah had received God's covenant promises and forgiveness long before he was ever sent to Nineveh. And in fact, when Jonah disobeyed, God did not let the storm kill him. He did not let the fish kill him. God brought him out and graciously recommissioned Jonah to go to Nineveh. All of that is the gospel. The mission does not bring us into relationship with God. Our previous relationship with God propels us into mission. Friends, here is the truth for you and me if you are sitting here as a believer. If you are a believer, the Father loved you before the creation of the world. He made you out of dust and made you in his image. He created you and he loved you and he chose you before the foundation of the world to be his in Christ Jesus. Before you had done good, before you had done evil, the Father set his love on you and me. And let me be even more blunt, knowing all the evil you and I would do, that's exactly what he did for us. Christ came to this earth and he lived in obedience for me and for you. Every area where I have thought what I should not think, Jesus obeyed. And every attitude I have had that has been a stench in the nostrils of God, Jesus refused and he was always obedient in his attitudes, in his words, in his thoughts, in his desires, in his actions. Actively obeying God with every breath of his life. And then at the end of that, he bore the righteous wrath of God against my sin and against yours based on nothing I had done or could do, nothing you have done or will ever do. He did all of that simply because he loves us. And he was raised from the dead. He is seated at the right hand of God. And we are told he is ruling and reigning all things right now for your good, for the glory of God. The Holy Spirit has come to you and I when we were dead in trespasses and sins. When I was 16 years old, two days after being so stoned and drunk, I don't even remember anything, the voice of God called out to me and I was saved. Nothing I had done. And the same thing is true for you. Even if you were raised in a Christian home, that is true for you. God spoke to you. God opened your eyes, and he forgave everything you have done, and he poured his Holy Spirit out on you, and he dwells in you, and it is all a gracious gift, every bit of it. And that is where your glory belongs. That is where your hope belongs. That is where your inheritance belongs. And it doesn't matter if you're born in 21st century America, or if you're born in Iran, or you're born in some the Holy Roman Empire in the 800s. It doesn't matter. It is the same gospel, and that is the only way to know and walk with God. And we need to remind ourselves of that gospel. Hear and believe the good news. 
That is where your hope is. It's not based on anything else. It's not based on your obedience, and it's also not based on our country or anything else we have here in this world. This world is passing away because it is full of sin. But the gospel has overcome all of this. Now, what that does for you and me, if we meditate on that, and we meditate on that every day, the overflow of the gospel is gratitude. That's what it prompts, which puts me into mission. As those who've received all of this, if you are here and you have not received the gospel I just talked about, I want to encourage you and challenge you. You are not saved by joining a church. You are not saved by getting water baptized. You are not saved because you do enough good. Because the standard is perfection. And I, even if I don't know you, you don't meet it. In word, thought, or deed, you have not met it. You never will meet it. But the gospel is freely available to all. We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Hear and believe the good news. If you and I are those who've received it, the question is, will we join God on mission? We have been forgiven so much. And not just past. This week, I sinned enough to hang my head in shame forever. And so did you, friends. And God has graciously forgiven us. As Bunyan, the writer of Pilgrim's Progress, said, my best prayer my best prayer has enough sin to condemn every soul who has ever lived to everlasting punishment in hell. My best prayer. I dare say many of my prayers are not my best prayer, much less my other words and thoughts and deeds. We were the other. You want to talk about a cross-cultural mission? How about Jesus leaving heaven and coming to us? and reaching out to us. God loved us in that state. Will we love those who are other to us? Here and around the globe. I'm not just talking about people that live in some foreign country. I'm talking about people right here that don't look like us, don't talk like us, may grow up in very different circumstances than you and I. Will we love them? To do this, we have to forsake those beliefs and attitudes that I was talking about, because if we don't, we'll never love the person who is other, and we can't go on mission. We'll just wait for people who are like us. If we don't let the Spirit reveal and change these things in us, our participation in the mission of God will always only be partial. Well, let me tell you, and this is a key thing, to even make it a little self-serving since we're good Americans and we always want to know what's in it for me. Here's what's in it for you. Ultimate joy. Joy is found in joining God on mission. Joy is found in that the fact that God, who has done all these things for us, marvelously sends us on mission. And every part of our, of our being can reverberate with the glory of God if we forsake those sinful attitudes and embrace the call that God has given us. I'm going to close with a poem, and then we're going to pray. This is a poem called You, Jonah by Thomas Carlyle. We're going to put it up here. I encourage you to read this and be challenged. And Jonah stalked to his shaded seat and waited for God to come around to his way of thinking. And God is still waiting 
for a host of Jonah's in their comfortable houses to come around to his way of loving. So we're going to pray, and I want to encourage you to pray along with me. And wherever God has pierced, I hope you all understand, these are painful teachings to get ready for. This was not a pleasant week. I was not saying, ooh, this is good. I get to get some people this morning. This was, oh, God, I am so much like Jonah. Would you deliver me from me? Let's stand together. We will conclude with prayer. I encourage us to offer a prayer of repentance, confession, and then consecration to God and His call. Father, it is painful to read about Jonah because, Lord, that book could have been named Brett. That could have been me. But, Lord, I look back at all the times when you were calling me to speak to someone, to forgive someone, to love someone, and I found myself bound for Tarshish. I found myself trying to hide from you. Lord, this morning, as a congregation, we're not here to pray and repent for others. We're here to pray and repent for ourselves. Father, we are so quick to see and judge sins we don't like, but to gloss over sins that have deep purchase in our own soul. Father, I am so tempted and skewed to focus on passages of Scripture that would condemn the sins of others, and to glide quickly over those that would shine a light on mine. Father, I am so tempted in my sin to want mercy for myself, but justice for those whom I don't like. And Father, I am so tempted to put politics, to put my own culture, to put my own desires ahead of your call and your will. God, I repent, and I confess that. And I ask that the gospel, the promises contained in that gospel, the blood of Christ, would cleanse me from all of that sin. And Father, as his blood cleanses us, I pray that you would break the back of that sin, that you would break its power. Father, I pray this week when we are tempted to be Jonah and to prophesy success for those that we like and destruction for those that do, we do not. Father, I pray your Holy Spirit would speak to us Father, I pray that you would arrest us and I pray that you would shine your light upon us and then you would recommission us, Father, to carry your mission. 
Father, I delight and rejoice when I read, as I did this week, that the fastest growing church in the world is in Iran. Not here. It's in Iran. Father, but I thank you that the gospel is exploding there. I thank you that millions are coming in and are embracing Christ. And I pray for your gospel to penetrate places where it has not penetrated before. And Father, I pray for it to penetrate right here into the evangelical church in America. Lord, where we are so given to these other things. I pray our first thought would not always be regarding politics, regarding how we can protect what is ours, but our thought would always be, what is God doing? How is he opening up avenues for the gospel? How can I be propelled into mission? Father, I pray that I would not sit around in my place waiting for you to come around to my way of thinking. Father, I pray that rather I would come around to yours and would be sent forth with your way of loving, trusting that your gospel is more powerful than any human philosophy, than any kingdom or nation on this earth, than any system that the enemy could bring up your gospel is still powerful to save. Father, I pray that is where our confidence would lie, in your gospel, in your word, in the power of your Holy Spirit, in Jesus who sits at your right hand, and you, our Father, Lord and Creator and Ruler of all. Father, would you work these things in us, I ask in Jesus' name, amen. I encourage you to receive the blessing of God and go forth in God's covenant, unlike Jonah. God says, I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you, and I will make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Receive the blessing of God and go be a blessing. Go forth in the name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you for listening to the teaching ministry of Bay Ridge Christian Church. For more teachings and resources, please visit www.brcc.church.